I'm sitting here wondering how to begin, actually. Um, so we have the theme of our retreat, Coming Home, and last night I began. That was Coming Home, Part 1. It's kind of an intention that tonight is Coming Home, Part 2. And I was trying to feel what there was a little conflict. I, and I could see the conflict was... I want to tell you everything that I know about coming home. But we've had a lot of teaching today, a lot of input, a lot you've been working with. A lot of practice. A lot of dedication, a lot of showing up. And there's a, it's a funny thing with, with coming home. It's as if you know, like when we do long to go home. Let's say I had this friend at university, and she said uh, she went on a camping holiday once with her family. But after a day, they all said, "Let's go home." Right. So there was this kind of pull to home, and that pull to home. It's like we're going to get somewhere. It's done. It's finished. It's slightly the conflict that's there now. I want to tell you everything and the punchline, and right then it'll be done. But there's something about our engagement in the journey itself, rather than trying to get somewhere else. That's really a big part of the samsara, is we're always trying to get somewhere else. And even a lovely title like coming home, we can start to relate to it like right. It's going to be. Whatever this thing is she's talking about, it's going to be somewhere else further along. And we need to step out of that very rigid view of cause and effect. There is a wisdom in understanding cause and effect. What conditions support certain wholesome things? What conditions support unwholesome things? We need to know that. But in terms of the journey of release, that's a part of it. We also need to understand that we have to fully, fully, fully immerse right here without any view to going anywhere else. Home isn't when you've finished your camping holiday. It's actually here. But we fail to recognize it over and over and over again. Constantly making ourselves homeless. Not in the, the sense of the monks and nuns where they go into voluntary homelessness in order to understand the path. But the homeless where we, we feel more like a hitchhiker in this life. We haven't quite arrived yet. Maybe when I'm 30. You know, maybe, when I'm, maybe when I've got a house. Maybe when I've never quite arrived. I once heard somebody uh, translate philosophy, yeah, philosophy, the, the study of uh, truth, actually, described it as homesickness. The, the philosopher is suffering from homesickness, and that's what makes us interested. There is that call, that longing, that wish for that. So I'll offer a few reflections and see where that goes.
do we make peace with our experience? Yesterday I talked about how we can't make our home in it, right? We can't claim it as mine or an ultimate refuge. I explored that yesterday. But neither can we just push it away, right? Okay, well, experience isn't where it's at for, in terms of the, the full release. Neither can we push it away. We're in a world of experience, even if you've tried to get away from it. I think meditation might be a stop to that, but there's experience, right? Thoughts, feelings, sensations. And this is, so I want to flesh out a little bit more about the insight part that I began to talk about in the instructions this morning. In the Buddhist path, in the Buddhist teachings, you can see two main orientations, I would say. There's many pieces to that, but two orientations. One is the study of experience. Right? We meditate, we get here, there's enough calm, we turn the attention, the quality of mindful attention to experience directly to see it as it is. And we study experience, and the Buddha said had a very good framework for that, which we've I've begun talking about. We study our experience, breath, body, sensation, thought, feeling, etc. Not through our ideas about it, but through the direct contact. Because experience is where we get snagged all the time. This is where we get bound. This is where our experience of being in bondage, of not quite arriving, of spinning and wanting the next thing or wanting the thing that was before. So he said, study experience. You're seeing it wrongly, basically. You're not seeing it right. There's a, a misseeing of actually what's going on with experience. And I'll tell you what he said about what we can, how we can look that way. You also get the teaching in the Buddhist tradition, where what is pointed to is the nature of the awakened mind, which is already here. It's not something actually that you get to. You never get to it. You can realize it, but you don't get to it because it's already what we are, actually. And both have their place. Here, we're more at this point, looking at the study of experience. This is where we get snagged. But we're not asked to study experience so that we can be expert experiences, right? We're asked to study experience to come into a wise relationship with it because we're not. We mistake it. We don't quite understand its place, what it's here for, actually. So the Buddha said, try this out. How about looking at your experience, right? So you're, there's enough gatheredness. We can turn that attention toward the breath, toward the body sensation, toward what arises. He said, how about looking at the experience and try on these lenses, these perceptions. Try on these perceptions as a way of looking. He said, because you're not seeing it right. Let me help you out. <coughs> he said the first, that, and there's three such lenses, three such uh, ways he's saying, check it out this way. The first one I talked a lot about last night, which is the perception of anicca, meaning impermanence, meaning that experience, its nature is just to keep moving. It's impermanent, it changes, it moves towards cessation. No sooner has something started to show up than it is in the process of moving on. And if we look really deeply into that, there's not even an it that shows up that then moves on. It's just things constantly changing. The nature of things is to take shape and unfold and show up like this or like this or like this. And he said, what we're doing is misperceiving. We're taking that which is impermanent to be permanent. 
Without looking closely, we actually believe these things are fixed and solid. Right? Intellectually, all of you will probably say, I know they're not. Right? And it has to go deeper than that. The second lens, another lens, these characteristics are to all experiences, outer, inner, sight, sounds, taste, touch, smell, thought, image, mind state, emotion, mountains, ants. It's all sharing this characteristic. The second characteristic I've also spoken about of he says there's, we're misperceiving. He's saying we're taking things that cannot be satisfactory because that's their nature. They can't give us that abiding, that abiding that the heart, where the heart longs to rest. We're taking the unsatisfactory as satisfactory. So check it out. Is it really satisfactory in that sense of providing that lasting, resting, put my feet up and right? look into anything? The thing you think is most satisfactory. And we might want to hope that there's still one thing, you know. Maybe my cat. He's pretty good. And he is. And it's easy to see in that example. It's not his job to make my home either. The third characteristic, which I haven't spoken so much about... It's, a little, it's much harder to get your head around this. In fact, I don't suggest you do. Is the characteristic of anatta, which means not-self. And he says the misperception is, the third misperception, you're taking things to have an inherent existence. Like there's a little thing here that's Catherine. And it's, I carry it around with me. It's like a little plaque or cushion, or... You're taking that which is not self to be self. You're imputing, you're, you're believing, you're seeing, because it's how things appear. Right? It looks like there's me here and Ruth there. That we believe the appearance of that apparent inherent separation. And he said, check it out. Check it out, look deeply. This one we do need actually to be... from the meditative point of view, quite still to perceive it. It's very subtle. It's such an inherent strong belief and attachment. One of the four great attachments that we're most attached to is this view of self, this self-view. So try on these lenses when we're paying attention to our breath. You can perceive the beginnings and the endings you can perceive that if you cling to it, if you try and make your home even in the breath, got it, I got a good bit. No sooner have we done that than it passes through our fingers and it's gone. And this characteristic of not-self, it's not in our control. Another way of looking at that is that it's not in our control. We like to think it is. Right, but really, did you ask to show up as one of these? If you could control your mind, you'd have done it already. I'm sure nobody woke up this morning thinking, okay, right, today I think I'll have grumpiness followed by irritation, bit of love, and then numbness, blankness. Yeah. We didn't set it up. And can we take our hands off? Can we kind of, okay, maybe it's not in my control. It's a big relief in that. There's a, there's a fear. It's like, oh my goodness me, if it's not in my control. It doesn't mean we can't influence. It doesn't mean there isn't a path. But it's not in our control the way we think. Some of you will have heard this. Uh, I like it very much. Hope I bought it. Yeah. From Gandhi. He says, I, o- I have only three adversaries. My fra- favorite adversary and the one most easily influenced for the better is the British Empire. My second adversary, the Indian people, are far more difficult. But my most formidable opponent is a man named Mohandas K. Gandhi. With him, I seem to have very little influence. (laughs) And what 
you know, if, if nothing, he was a pretty much a man of discipline as far as I can work out. But that lightness of touch of like, okay, yes, I put in the effort. Yes, I show up in the form. Yes, I do all that. But can I put my hands up and say, okay, maybe I don't know. Maybe I don't have to control it. Maybe there's something else going on here more than just my mind and my body and my feelings. So there arises the battle again. I want to tell you everything. Okay, I can't. So making peace with the experience is to come into wise relationship with it. And on a retreat, when we stop, we get here on the first day a little bit more. We pay attention, mindfulness of body. One of the things that starts to show up, can show up, does show up, is the resonances of my patterning, the way I'm patterned, the way that from the vast potential of how life can show up, the particular grooves and patterns that have seem to have become me, they show up. Here. So if there's, been, if there's a groove, a resonant groove in consciousness of, well, we all share resonant grooves fundamentally in terms of unwholesome states of, of desire, of lust, of greed, of hatred and aversion and pushing away, and of confusion and delusion, not seeing clearly. Those we share. Right? Those we share, they do in the path, uh, thin out, get purified, get clarified somewhat and open out to completion in the full awakening. And we take the patterning also very personally, especially the patterns that seem most personal, the patterns that really do feel like me. making peace with those so it might be I'm I don't know, what are some of yours? Could be anything. I'm a really useless person, really deficient person, let's say. And we do our best not to see that, but there's somewhere where we really believe it. It's kind of been selected and there's probably been conditioning to kind of bolster that. And somewhere I really believe that's true. So the resonance of that will show up here. Whoop, there it is. But normally we don't see it, we act from it. We believe it. So we either feel shame or we hide or we try and bolster ourselves to not feel it. But the resonance of it may arise nonetheless. And actually from the perspective of uh, ego, we could say, uh, the sense of separate self, it's always deficient. Can't help it. It's not connected with the depth of what we are. So it's not even personal, the sense of not quite having it together. So let's say that arises resonant, we feel maybe the the weakness of that or the collapse in that or the pain of that. Making peace with it is opening out, perceiving it with mindful awareness, seeing that actually if I don't take it on as me and believe it, and when I believe it I either say yes it is or no it isn't. Right? There's still a clinging in it. There's still a holding, an attachment. I'm giving it, I'm giving it, uh, I'm reifying it. I'm actually making it into a truth when actually it's something that's passing through. Can I perceive that it shares those same characteristics? 
If I take my hands off, it arises. Whoa, oh, this unpleasant might be unpleasant. I back off and yet I'm still intimate with it, but I don't put pressure on it. It also passes. It isn't self, it isn't who we are, actually. It may be a patterning. And the compassion and the tenderness, sensitivity and firmness with our patterning is part of what gets cultivated along the way. Sometimes we think that the pat- all the patterning is all the problem. It's not, actually. The problem is we fall into the grooves of those patterns and believe that's who we are. So one example I like to give, a concrete example, is some long time ago I taught a retreat, had the good fortune and privilege to teach a retreat in Bodhgaya, which is the small town village in India where the Buddha, the story is the Buddha sat under the tree and realized what he realized. And I was teaching a retreat there and... Shall back up a little bit. One of the ways of making peace with our experience is through wise intention. And the Buddha spoke about three wise intentions. He said the intention toward non-hatred, the intention toward non-cruelty, and the intention toward renunciation, meaning letting go. As intentions, it's like a kind of compass. We can clarify and check our intention. So this uh, young woman came to the group meeting and she said, I've just noticed something that completely speaks to me about my whole life. I'm just doing something here that's a complete microcosm of what I do out there, like somebody said today in the inquiry. She said, I'm... I'm doing my walking meditation and it was in temple grounds on concrete and it's winter during that retreat so it's not that sunny, it's occasionally sunny. So the sunny spots of concrete floor to do your walking meditation are prime, prime spots for walking meditation. If you've already got territorial here, you know what it's like when territory is in short supply. So she had her spot and It was however long it was, 10 yards or something. And she said, um, in my morning walking meditation, there was sun on my whole path. That's why I chose it, right? Chose the nice spot. We want it to be pleasant, right? Nothing wrong with that. She said, I came to the second walking meditation before lunch. And she hadn't quite clocked what was going, but her walking path had got smaller. Instead of 10 yards, it had become 8 yards. By the afternoon, she said my walking path was five yards, and then by just before tea, it was like two yards, and then she got it. She goes, oh, I've stayed in the sunny spot. As the shadow came during the day and the shade came, there was a smaller and smaller area that was sunny and warm and pleasant. Right? So my path got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller till I was walking two meters back two meters, and then she got it. That's what I do. That's what I do in my life. I'm avoiding going into that bit that looks a little bit more shadowy or colder or um, doesn't look as pleasant, doesn't look as inviting. But what happens as a result is that my world shrinks. My path shrinks. I start to avoid all the things I don't want and my world starts to become really, really small. And she said what she noticed, even though in her mind she knew it wasn't a big deal on some level, she noticed, she thought, okay, and this was a result of the intention toward renunciation, the intention toward letting go. She said, okay, a big challenge. It can seem like a big challenge. She said she got to the end of her two meters where the sun stopped and the cool concrete began. She lifted her foot and all the resistance there, even though her mind knew it's not going to be that bad. 95% of the suffering is often in the resistance, right? She said she took the step and landed with her bare feet on the cool concrete, cold concrete, no sunshine there. 
And she said, oh, what a relief, stepping beyond the comfort zone, actually. And the insight of the meditation, the meditative process, replicating the bondage that the mind weaves for ourselves, that we spin for ourselves again and again. So letting those resonances arise, the places that we have clung to as me and mine. I am this angry one. Anger arises and then it's, I shouldn't be angry or I should be angry. I get busy with it and hold on. right? Rather than seeing this too can pass through actually. I don't have to act on it. I don't have to push it down. Letting these resonances move is a big part of the skill and part of the aspect of purification where one aspect of the path is a kind of clarifying, a clarifying of who we've taken ourselves to be actually and what we've taken ourselves to be, this case of mistaken identity. We think we're all the things, all the experiences but we're not. (laughs) And the patterning has a function, actually. The proper place of patterning is that it does have a function. Not those places that we've clung to, but the patterning of... You know, there's certain grooves worn in me that are actually quite useful. Meaning that when I wake up in the morning, I don't have to learn how to speak English all over again. It took a long time. I know. Six years? When you're from a baby, it takes a long time to master a language. A lot of processes have to go on. There's a patterning there. It has a function. There's a patterning. There's a. <clears throat> it's like I know my name when I wake up in the morning. It's a convention. It's a. It's a. It's a convention that we can agree upon and use and function with. If I mistake the patterning for reality, then I'm having a problem. The true place of the patterning is that it has at some point had a function. Some of them are redundant functions and our path, our our sitting lets those arise and we can let them move on or work with how we can't let them move on. Part of making peace with experience is to cultivate what I was calling earlier the emissaries of home. The qualities of heart and mind that we recognize have a resonance of something real about them. And there are many. I picked on joy today. It's one of many. You know, and that may be something you're more or less resonant with, but there are many, many. We can pick those up. They're useful resonances, beautiful resonances. We can pick up and practice with, with compassion, with kindness, with equanimity. Every time you sit there and open to something, let's say, unpleasant in this moment, right? some itch on your nose, you're dying to scratch, and you breathe out and with the intention of just being still because you're curious to see what will happen if I just don't itch. We're slowly cultivating this quality of the mountain-like presence that isn't pulled and pushed by the pleasant or unpleasant. It's powerful. And those decisions are made in every moment, actually. 
It's not somewhere else out there. It's it's right now. The qualities of the factors of awakening that I spoke about. The joy, the energy, the investigation. And I didn't speak so much about the, the calming states, the equanimity is one, the tranquility, the stillness, the samadhi, the concentration. And they are things we can cultivate. We don't have to perfectly know them when we walk in this door. We can cultivate them. We can choose things that support that. There's a kind of gardening process that can happen here. Whatever we feed and nourish and sustain, that will grow, actually. I want to read this poem by Wendell Berry. He's talking about peace. It's called The Peace of Wild Things. And this is a very simple act, something that we can do for ourselves. He says, when despair for the world comes upon me and I awake at the slightest sound in fear of what my life and what my children's lives may be, I go down to where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and where the great heron feeds. I come into the presence of still water and feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with the forethought of grief. For a while I rest in the grace of the world and am free. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with the forethought of grief. For a while I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Can we uh, go to those refuges? And in this case, it's the, the lessons from nature, of which we are, but don't necessarily recognize fully. Can we know where our refuges are? Even our worldly refuges that really support, certain things support the deepening of the beautiful qualities that allow us to move to release. And some things don't, actually. And there's a wisdom in knowing the difference and choices to be made. So I kind of conceived this or saw this in three parts around home. The first one is just beginning to arrive here, right? Just feeling our feet on the ground a bit more, getting a little bit more into our body, showing up a little bit more with what's arising. Not perfectly, not according to some um, ideal, but just here a little bit more. The second piece that I've spoken about is as we get here a bit more, some of the resonances arise, some of the problematic resonances, some of the wholesome resonances, other resonances arise that we also recognize that aren't seemingly so much about our conditioning or our patterning or something else can also arise. So people to, some people today were talking about resonances of stillness or open black space or um, there, there's many gentleness right getting also to know these resonances these wholesome resonances letting them take us deeper 
breathing with them, getting to know them. It's a skillful part of making peace with experience. So that's the second piece. The third piece is what the Buddha was actually speaking about when he, what he's pointing to as the end of the path. So in the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering, we looked a lot at the first noble truth, right? There's, this, there's unsatisfactoriness. Get to know it, come close, understand it, stand with it, resonate with it. Know it, know its characteristics. The second truth, the cause for that dissatisfaction is clinging. You don't know you're doing it. We don't know we're doing it half the time. It's knee-jerk. It's a a knee-jerk response when we're not quite fully at home in the vastness of what we are. Right? So we don't need to give ourselves a hard time about it, but we can recognize it. Oh wow, yeah, I'm taking hold of this, this burning coal. I, it's this experience. Right? Can we let it go? Can we intend toward letting go? And the third truth, there's an end to this. There's an end to this constant spinning and dissatisfaction. <coughs> Realize this. And one of the ways the Buddha talked about this was one of the ways was as the supreme security from bondage. So a real refuge, if you like. It's usually more commonly spoken about in the negative, meaning it's not this and it's not this and it's not this. Because if we try and get our head around it and say, oh, it's going to look like that, we're far off the mark. Right? So spoken about as the deathless, that in which there is no coming and going, the sorrowless, nibbana, nibbana, which literally means the cooling out, the cooling out of the distortions, the cooling out of the greed and the hate and the confusion, kind of cools out. And then... What's there when all those relax and cool out? And that's what's being pointed to. And it's important that we don't take this on as, oh my goodness, that's really way ahead. Right? That's really, first, surely I have to sort myself out first. Right? But that nature of mind that is undefiled, that is vast, that is pure, someone else today spoke about recognizing a kind of purity, which doesn't mean a split of good and bad, but it's something that is untainted, unwritten on, we could say. It's here. It's right here, right now. But we keep leaving home. So we have to understand that process of keeping leaving home. Because we don't recognize it in the way that we recognize experience and say, that's joy, that's sadness, that's a footstep, that's a heron, that's a rook. But it can be realized. And that is a human birthright and very often that longing for home that we may feel in the heart is the longing for the release from that suffering for the knowing of that so sometimes I used to hear about Nibbana because it's a foreign word for for a start it's like oh my goodness no idea what that is right that it can start to make it abstracted or something that's not about me or you know 
some way we count ourselves out. Yeah, maybe those five who sit there, they, they can have it, but probably not me. Oh, I'm not sure I even want it. It doesn't sound that good to be called out. Whatever it is. But if we're interested in freedom, then we're interested in the bana. What hap- one of the things that happens as we practice is that subtly, sometimes in a, in a dramatic way, sometimes in a very imperceptible way, a quiet way, a slow, uh, gradual dwindling of our wrong views, the wrong views of what, how we take reality to be. And the views can start to shift. I don't know if that's happened for any of you at any point. It can happen in practice. It can happen when something happens in our life or so that's like, oh my goodness, I thought things were like this, but actually our whole view of reality gets blown out the window and, oh my goodness, it's actually like this. Right? Part, again, somebody today spoke about, yeah, part of why I don't have so much access to curiosity is because I like to know. And like to, liking to know this, we like to control, we like things to be predictable in a certain way. But slowly, slowly, as we keep faith with the process, little things come into that fixed view, don't they? Right? Little things show up for us that didn't fit who we thought we were. Somebody said today, I didn't actually think I had any curiosity, but wow, there's a lot showing up here. As we practice, our view even shifts about what practice is for, what it looks like, what the meaning of it is, where it's taking us. That all shifts as well. Are we willing to be shifted? Are we willing to have our view of things shifted? Sometimes it's not comfortable. I had one teacher, he was very good at pulling the rug out from under your feet. That was his specialty. Right? Sort of more traditional... Um, oh, you think it's like that? Right? That skill can be a skill. It can also be a little shocking. Right? Are we up for that? It doesn't always have to be shocking. It can be very quiet. It might be just the way that suddenly <coughs> we're outside in the walking period again. And we say, why? I never even noticed there were three beautiful trees here. Three enormous, majestic, stunning, ancient trees. I've been here ten times to Guy House and never noticed them before. Our view opens, can be our visual view. So notice these places where the view starts to open. Views open when that attachment to our views and opinions, one of the other great attachments, can start to soften. There's enough faith, enough trust, enough resources to say, okay, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe I don't know exactly what this life is. And here we can soften around the edges, the views, and into the the edges, or somebody was talking about the shell the other day, the shell where we feel our separation very acutely, little chinks of light come into that shell and kind of break us open slowly. So I want to read you another one of my favorite stories about a shift in view. This is a story of a Taoist meditation master living alone in his small hut in the woods. Stories had circulated into the, in the nearby town as to this man's unusual behavior. So a Confucian delegation was sent to go and check him out, to see if all was in order. As they came to knock on the door, the leader of the delegation saw through the window that the Taoist master was sitting alone on the floor, cross-legged, in his hut, with no pants on. (laughs) Horrified, he didn't wait to knock. He barged into the hut and and he exclaimed, What's going on here? This is a disgrace. What I want to know is, what are you doing sitting in this hut hut with no pants on? The Taoist meditation master looked up serenely and he replied, Who says that this is so? In fact, from where I'm sitting, this whole world is my hut.
This hut is my pants. And what I want to know is, what are you doing in my pants? <laughs> it's like, the view, just, the view can open right out. Right? I'm sure you've had your views open out. It's not always a happy moment, but there's something we recognize it about it that's real. So I want to finish with a quote from one of my teachers, if I have it. This is from Ajahn Suchito, who's the um, abbot of the Chithurst Buddhist Monastery in Hampshire, Sussex border. He's a a teacher and a colleague and a friend also. And this is from him. He says, There is no real learning just on the intellectual level. There is only a kind of learning that we do when we have the humility to recognize that really the learning part is when we go to the edge of where we know and where we control. And the nobility of our life, the nobility of our purpose, the aspiration of our life says, keep going. Pass the area where you can't control it anymore and trust. For me, this is the heart of devotion, the heart of faith, the heart of surrender. Not a surrender of responsibility, but a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is. To live in accordance with what is true. To honor the truth and to trust the truth of our life as it is. What lies beyond me and control and the sense of self is the joy of the deathless, the joy of the boundless, the mysterious vastness of life. So let's sit together for a minute or two.
your beings recognize the resonance of stillness. May all beings recognize the resonance of silence. And may all beings know the sure release from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.